maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. I'm producer Faye Adabita. And I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. We're looking at China for this episode. Over the decades, its rise to becoming the economic and geopolitical superpower we recognize today has been accompanied by a very particular brand of tightly managed regulation of sectors, ranging from industry to the media, both at home and abroad. Bethany Allen Ibrahimian's recent book, Beijing Rules, How China Weaponized Its Economy to Confront the World, looks at how that transformation has taken place. Some of our listeners may know Bethany Allen Ibrahimian as the China reporter for Axios. She's been based in Taipei, Taiwan for a long time, and her reporting has even caught the ire of Chinese officials with her social media being blocked in China. And you were in conversation with Bethany for this one, weren't you, Connor? What was one thing that stood out to you when having the discussion? Yeah, I think one thing that really sunk in is how big multinational companies in the years ahead will have to choose whether they want to stay quiet on issues like democracy and human rights in order to get access to the Chinese market and keep in the good books of the Chinese Communist Party, or whether they want to speak out on these issues and potentially be banned from doing business in China. And Bethany has tons of anecdotes and examples of this from the NBA to online platforms being pressured by the Chinese government. I think that sounds like a really fascinating dilemma we'll be thinking about for a long time to come. If you want to get more of the discussion, if you're an Intelligence Squared member, you can get the whole thing. Head to intelligencesquared.com slash membership to sign up and you'll get the extended version of this chat, plus some pretty hefty extra content, including our new series on AI, Power Trip, themed episode bundles, ad-free listening, and updates on our live events too. Or you can hit subscribe on Apple to get the audio. Now, let's jump into Connor and Bethany talking all things China. Bethany, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me today, Connor. I think the best place to start would be if you could just give us an overview of the thesis of the book or what's the big argument you want to get across. My main argument is that the main source of China's power in the 21st century is going to be its economy, or what I call its authoritarian economic statecraft, which means that the Chinese government has weaponized its economy, access to its economy, to shape the behavior of companies, individuals, and governments 
to be more in line with the core interests that the Chinese Communist Party believes it needs to extend its rule around the world. What do you think we're getting wrong in terms of our approach to China? You spoke about how in conservatives, there's more of a reflexive anti-China, maybe sentiment on another on the progressive left, there can sometimes be you know, anti-Western or a suspicion of Western action. What are we getting wrong about China? Well, I think it's important to understand that the way that the Chinese government has uh, is using access and denial to its economy to, to shape uh, values and behaviors around the world in line with its own illiberal goals, that is dependent in large part upon what some people like to call neoliberalism, that is to say a, a very lightly regulated capitalism that has been pushed by the West and by the US for the past 40 years. Essentially, um, you know, since Reagan and since Thatcher, trade behavior has been delinked from political values. As long as trade is, uh, you know, is, is done within certain frameworks to promote free markets, you can really do whatever you want. And the Chinese government has view, you know, views that as essentially a, a moral and political void. And what they have done is link trade behavior to its illiberal values. And the problem that we're seeing in the pushback to China's growing and more assertive authoritarianism is that it's not wrong to view this as a national security threat to Western democracies. But no one is really addressing the underlying, uh, you know, our delinking of trade behavior and democratic values. You know, that's really where we're so concerned about China's influence around the world. And, and that's where a lot of its power come from. So, you know, where we should be focusing more of our efforts is, in fact, to some extent within our own system trying to put democratic guardrails back onto economic behavior. And in the book, you say, you know, COVID-19 was the first time the world really got to see the People's Republic of China as uh, at the top of uh, a global crisis. What kind of lessons do you think we need to draw from China's role in the COVID-19 crisis? Sure. Well, as every single person in the world experienced in, in early 2020, the, the pandemic began in China, and because of its authoritarian system, the initial response to the pandemic it, it, you know, by public health specialists was suppressed by local government officials in China who felt that their own political future would be jeopardized if the central government or if the rest of the world knew that there was this new virus that was you know, floating around in Wuhan. And because of because it began there, because the Chinese government system had this catastrophic failure, what we later saw from China was that as the virus spread around the world, killing hundreds of thousands uh, of people you know, in the first in the first number of months um, in the first year, the the Chinese government began to use these levers of political influence to try to forcibly change that narrative. Now, in my work as a journalist, I have long covered China's covert political influence and interference abroad. But in the past, those kinds of levers of influence have mostly been used for issues that can seem somewhat niche. So suppressing narratives about uh, Taiwan's de facto independence, suppressing knowledge of the genocide that the Chinese government is perpetrating in Xinjiang, such issues as, or, you know, criticism of China's domestic human rights record like this. And in the past, it's been easy for people to note this kind of activity 
um, you know, for example, not allowing uh, companies who's, you know, um, who have engaged in behavior that openly talks about China's, you know, human rights record in China, not allowing them to have access to the Chinese economy, this kind of thing. While people have noted that and said, well, that's kind of unfortunate, they have, you know, people generally wrote it off as not very significant because how many Tibetans are there in the world? How many people from Xinjiang are there in the world? How many Taiwanese are there? That it, you know, not imagining that this was an issue that would characterize China's comprehensive global power or that it could in fact affect every single one of us. But that's what we saw, for example, when uh, the then prime minister of Australia, Scott Morrison, issued a call in April 2020 for an independent scientific inquiry into the origins of the coronavirus. Now, this is something that is hugely important. Every time there's a pandemic, we need to know where it comes from so that scientists and you know, public health specialists can try to prevent it in the future or have better treatments available. But when uh, Scott Morrison did that, the Chinese government responded by slapping a bunch of tariffs on Ch uh, Australian exports to China as a form of coercion. And there were other forms uh, of attempts to suppress the you know free discussion of the the origins of the pandemic and this is basic scientific inquiry so we saw you know how the chinese government with the pandemic how it responds to a global crisis in which it doesn't always come away looking good that is slightly terrifying that we are sort of 3 years on from you know the first lockdowns and the pandemic beginning and we're no wiser Really, we haven't had any sort of independent investigation uh, fully done on, on the origins of the virus. Do you think the fact that we've moved on, uh, it doesn't seem to be a burning issue anymore that people are, except for maybe corners of the internet, really concerned about uh, holding China to account in terms of really you know, pushing for an independent investigation that China is too powerful for the rest of the world to um, force it into something it doesn't want to do? Right. Well, there's certainly still debate um, in the US and in sci the scientific community about uh, you know, how it started, um, and you know the U.S. government continues to you know push this issue, but the difficulty is that not only does the Chinese government continue to stymie, you know, b basic research. I mean, when they they've let um, you know WHO affiliated scientists into China to do investigations, but they didn't do that until years later, and then they didn't give them free access to data. But what's worse than that is the and some of the initial, you know, that initial time period um, in the, the first weeks and months when the, the virus first began to spread. Some of that initial information has been destroyed. Um, you know, so one of the initial centers of the outbreak, a, a wet market in Wuhan, uh, you know, people went in and they very, you know, very quickly, um, you know, sanitized it, killed the animals, you know, that, that's gone. No one can bring that information back. And so many people now seem to believe that while there may, we may forever have different theories about how the, that, the new virus came about, we'll probably never know for sure. And in that way, the Chinese government has, in a sense, been able to win a kind of a, a, kind of a battle Although, you know, the health of humanity is the loser, unfortunately. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. 
Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,025,1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. And, and I want to touch on more examples of how this sort of the economy of China is weaponized in, in certain ways. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about another big issue, which was um, boycotts of Xinjiang cotton by companies like H&M and Nike. How did China respond to, to those companies deciding they didn't want anything to do with Xinjiang? Well, right. So, so to be clear, it's been understood for a number of years that cotton, which, so Xinjiang produces some of the best quality cotton in the world. And about half of China's cotton comes from Xinjiang and um, up to a a third of textiles around the world made with cotton um, have inputs from China's cotton industry. So this is a, you know, this is widely integrated into global supply chains. And, you know, everyone watching this is probably wearing some cotton and probably where or certainly own some cotton that in fact is from Xinjiang. Now it's been understood for years that the cotton industry uh, in Xinjiang is very closely linked to forced labor of Uyghurs. And that forced labor is itself um, part of China's genocidal campaign to break the bonds of Uyghur families and to erase Uyghur identity, culture, language, and religion. But even though this was publicly known, Companies, uh, you know, around the world, Western companies, U.S. companies that did use cotton from Xinjiang did nothing. They did nothing until the U.S. government itself acted by putting some import prohibitions on cotton from Xinjiang and um, issuing a, a sanction for the Xinjiang Production and Construction Corps, which is a paramilitary organization in Xinjiang that also operates a lot of cotton production. So it wasn't until that that U.S. companies or that, that foreign companies even began to act simply because they had to. So in the case of, of H&M, which previously did use Xinjiang cotton, when they announced that they would no longer use it, which would be in line with, with U.S. government policy, there was a huge state-fanned 
consumer backlash against H&M. And they, uh, you know, lots of things happened to them in the Chinese market. For example, H&M uh, locations, the store locations in, in Shanghai, for example, were no longer searchable on Baidu Maps, which is the you know, Chinese equivalent of Google Maps. Um, and you know this, and 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 similar. There were videos posted online of of you know people burning um, you know Western made textiles, it's, it's stuff like this. So it's very very strong consumer boycott. But it's really important to understand that this is a it's a state backed and state fanned boycott. The Chinese government um, has made it very clear to celebrities and online influencers that when there's an issue like this, they can't just be silent. They certainly can't oppose the Chinese government position. They, they must actively support it. And so you get, in addition to grassroots nationalism, you get this, um, you know, uh, state fanned aspect of it. And so that puts, you know, companies like H&M and Zara and Uniqlo and Muji in such a bind, because on the one hand, if they continue using products that everyone knows are made with inputs from forced labor. Not only is it incredibly unpopular in Western societies to care about human rights, it's also illegal to import those you know, into the US right now, for example. But it's also um, under you know, new, new legal regimes in China, it's also illegal in China to not use, you know, to, to abide by illegal foreign sanctions or illegal unilateral sanctions. And if they publicly say that they're going to stop using Xinjiang cotton, then they're going to face this kind of a backlash in China. So you have this this clash of you know China's economy versus uh, you know the economies and legal structures in other countries. And you've spoken there. We've seen the example with Australia. If you speak out against you know call for an independent investigation into COVID, will impose sanctions on you know winemakers and other important industries where Australia imports into China. Uh, and in terms of Western companies, suffer these pretty huge consequences if they, they don't do what the Chinese government wants. Is there anything they can do about it? Is, just, just, is this just working with China? Can companies band together to put any pressure on the Chinese state? Or is this a, a really asymmetrical relationship between the power of the Chinese economy versus these Western companies or governments like Australia, which you know by themselves are don't match up to the power of the CCP. Right. Well, you, you've touched upon the the solution here, or at least a strategy, which is taking you know banding together. So in the past, let's say before COVID, um, before the the Trump administration's you know tough turn on China, and before you know many democratic countries around the world really got a sense of what the Chinese government was standing for. So let's say maybe circa 2015, what you had was individual companies. You know, individual Western companies, individual foreign companies versus the entire Chinese state. They, you know, when they're dealing with, you know, when they're trying to get into the Chinese market, stay in the Chinese market, deal with local Chinese partners, the Chinese government was exercising these, you know, very clear government, you know, state backed controls over economic behavior. And so if you have it, like, for example, the NBA um, in, I believe it was late 2018, no, it was 2019, 2019 when the the manager of the Houston Rockets, Daryl Morey, tweeted in support of Hong Kong's pro-democracy protests. The NBA, so the, the Houston Rockets, uh, and in fact, all the NBA, it was no longer straight. It, it, there was this gate that slammed and it was stopped being streamed on you know, Chinese streaming sites. Houston Rockets um, swag could, you know, could no longer be sold on Taobao, which is sort of like China's Amazon, and uh, a lot of stuff like that. And it's estimated that that cost the NBA $200 million 
you know, now the NBA has a lot of money, but no one really stood up for them. No, you know, there was the Chinese government by doing that didn't really break any known laws. So it was just the NBA versus the Chinese government. But what we're seeing now is, um, you know, there's, there's more awareness of how the Chinese government operates. And there's, there's two ways to push back against that. One of them is by governments banding together, you know, government to government support. And we are seeing moves in this direction. When the, the G7 leaders met in Hiroshima a few months ago, they issued a statement about economic coercion and economic resilience. Now, they didn't call out China by name, but it's obvious who they were talking about. And they spoke about the need to support each other and work together. What many people are now suggesting is there's different names for it, but it's basically the same thing. An economic NATO, an economic Article 5, some mechanism that when one country or one industry or one you know, set of, or, you know, one group of companies are targeted by the Chinese government in this way for illiberal reasons, you know, such as free speech, you know, someone criticizing a Chinese government policy, that there will be processes in place, mechanisms that, that kick into action to provide support to help the victim, the target of that coercion, and to and to punish the Chinese government for that activity. This does not yet exist, but this kind of mechanism, but it, it's something that's being talked about now. And in the EU, which has been behind the US and Australia in terms of its discussion of China's economic coercion and its willingness to act, the case of Lithuania really kind of shocked the EU system into understanding at least the need for this kind uh, of mechanism. So Lithuania um, began improving its ties to Taiwan, which China claims as its own territory. And as a response, we saw what was essentially the Chinese government uh, levying unofficial but real secondary sanctions. Now, Lithuanian companies don't really have many direct ties to China, but uh, Lithuanian factories do supply parts and components to lots of other companies in other countries that do supply China, notably German companies. And so the Chinese government stopped importing products from German companies that were sourcing from Lithuania. So putting pressure on Lithuania uh, indirectly in that way, um, and so that was such it was such a shock, you know, to the EU system to see that happening within their within their own borders. To but the, the so the second strategy here is one that is not on a government level, but is a, is a you know a domestic on a domestic level, country by country, and that is passing laws to promote better behavior. And this is it's regulating com companies but it's actually helping incentivize them and giving them more support in their dealings with the Chinese government. And here's what I mean by that. The US government has now passed and implemented a law that um, prohibits the importation of any products made in Xinjiang at all, unless it can be proved basically beyond the shadow of a doubt that those products are not made with forced labor. Now in the past, it was so difficult uh, you know, to, to try to prove forced labor um, so if, if there wasn't this mandate that you had to prove that there wasn't, it was easy for companies to continue to, to import stuff made in Xinjiang. And so Chinese government pressure on U.S. companies to not de-link their supply chains from Xinjiang was this overriding incentive. It was this overriding motive. But now if the Chinese government looks at U.S. companies and says, why are you de-linking your supply chains from Xinjiang? We want to punish you for that. The companies no longer have to point to their own moral compass. They can say, look, this is U.S. law. 
we have to comply with U.S. law. So by regulating the behavior of companies to make it more in line with political values uh, and moral values, a government is taking an issue that was once the Chinese government versus an individual company, in which the Chinese government will always win because it has more power, and elevating this to a government-to-government issue. Now the Chinese government, you know, is working, is, uh, you know, looking directly at the U.S. government's policy here. And that puts things on a much more level playing field. And how does the idea of, you know, an economic NATO, how is that interlinked with the idea of, we've heard a lot about decoupling from China or de-risking. Would you see that as these as a subset of an economic NATO or are those different ideas? They're somewhat different ideas. So when, when people talk about decoupling or de-risking, and, and to be clear, anytime anyone mentions Western decoupling from China. I really like to emphasize that China is de- has already decoupled and began the process of decoupling at least 15 years ago. Um, for example, by banning Facebook, banning Twitter, banning YouTube, putting extremely high requirements on U.S. and on foreign companies, you know, to make them, for example, have forced transfer technology before they can have joint ventures in China. China began the process of decoupling and is is much more extreme. In that the U.S. and other and other countries are far behind, um, and so you know again, it's that's that's China's behavior to which we are responding. De-risking is a little bit different. It's more targeted. It's more selective, and it can mean still engaging with China, but doing it in a in a in a way with with more protections. But fundamentally, either either word you want to use, decoupling or de-risking, it's about diversifying supply supply chains. Uh, it's about removing certain kinds of economic activity from China or certain kinds of trade. This idea of an economic NATO or an economic you know, self-defense agreement or mutual defense agreement is actually a way to protect trade with China, but is also at the same time a form of de-risking, if that makes sense. Because what it's saying is, we understand that all of us have economic ties to China and we want to preserve those. But we want to do that in a way that is safer for our companies, our economies, and our sovereignty. So we're going to have... Now, again, there is no economic NATO. It doesn't exist. But the idea is we will continue this economic behavior with China, but we will have protections in place so that if China chooses to weaponize those economic ties, we have a way to protect ourselves and to push back. Another big area which you touch on in the book is big tech. And you have a very fascinating chapter about Zoom and despite it being an American company, it's R&D being predominantly based in China. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how even Western companies can be influenced by China in sometimes more covert ways. Yes. So Zoom is a US company founded by a Chinese American named Eric Yuan based in California. And prior to the pandemic, Zoom had about 10 million users. Zoom is a video conferencing platform. Surely all of us now in the pandemic era are very familiar with it. And within a few months of the pandemic, that user base had gone from 10 million users to more than 300 million users. So it was a really big windfall for Zoom. However, Zoom differs from some other similar companies like WebEx, Google Meet, and others because at the time, 700 Zoom employees, most of its research and development team, were based in China because, and this is according to Zoom's own public disclosures, because it was cheaper there. They could save costs. And in fact, prior to the pandemic, in these public disclosures, Zoom acknowledged that having those employees in China was a reputational risk, but they continued to do it because it was better for Zoom's bottom line. So anyway, here we have Zoom. 
10, from 10 million users to 300 million users. That was also a windfall for China's security agencies, who in the beginning of the pandemic realized that this was, uh, this was a, a channel that they could use for surveillance and control of global debate by you know, being able to monitor all these conversations that were happening around the world. There was a um, so, sort of the, the context here is that in 2019, Zoom was blocked in China. It also has operations, you know, um, it, it offers it, it offered its platform in China for people to use in China. And that service was blocked in China because, uh, you know, the Chinese authorities said that Zoom was not sufficiently implementing its security policies. And so Zoom came up with a rectification plan. This was not public at the time. Zoom came up with a rectification plan uh, by which it agreed to monitor in real time conversations that were happening on Zoom's platform in China and to shut down accounts and meetings that did not follow China's censorship policies. And this is a, an, a, an issue that many different tech companies, uh, foreign tech companies with operations in China have faced. Increasingly, we've seen these tech companies pull out of China. So for example, LinkedIn, you know, my own profile on LinkedIn was censored in China in, uh, I believe it was in 2021. And then of course, me being a journalist, I wrote an article about it, which garnered a lot of anger, for example, among lawmakers in the US Congress. And when the, within a few weeks of that, Zoom announced it was, uh, sorry, LinkedIn announced it was actually going to pull out of China because it's facing this this clash of, of systems, you know, it's a, it's a U.S. company. It's supposed to abide by democratic values. Here it is censoring. In the end, it made the decision to pull out. But Zoom has not. Zoom still has employees in China. And so this is, you know, this is this fundamental conundrum that we're seeing. And the, the big concern is that as the Chinese market gets larger and larger, becomes more and more lucrative, what kinds of decisions, what kinds of compromises will the executives of U.S. and foreign tech companies make in order to continue to make money uh, in the Chinese market. It's quite a worrying prospect. Um, you think the, the choice really is very binary, that you either abide by the Chinese government's requests or you remove yourself from the Chinese market. That's what tech companies will have to decide. Right. And I think that's, that's where the importance of regulations uh, passed by democratic governments really can help level the playing field. Um, you know, I make, I make the argument in my book that, you know, we can shame these companies all we want. We can write as many articles, you know, saying that they're, you know, selling out as much as we want. At the end of the day, all they're doing is operate, operating by the business principles that our societies have taught them. You know, that the, these key tenets of essentially neoliberalism that the, you know, a company's primary and in fact only interest is the profit it can gain for its shareholders within the within the laws of the country that it exists in that has been you know like the you know scripture for business executives for the past 40 years and so now to sort of you know suddenly turn our you know sort of make a, a 180 there and start blaming us companies for simply abiding by the same rules they've always operated by in which you know 10 years ago we were still lauding them for operating by in some ways, that's not exactly fair, and it certainly isn't functional. That's not going to get them to do what we want them to do. What you do within that system is you pass laws to change their behavior. And so, for example, uh, you know, there's nothing really stopping Twitter, if it wanted to, from opening a presence in China and just censoring 
it could be very unpopular, but if, you know, Elon Musk wants to do that and, and doesn't mind, you know, getting, um, criticized in, in media, there's nothing really stopping him from doing that. What I think that, that, you know, democratic governments should do is for example, sanction Chinese companies who censor on behalf of Chinese government authoritarian political directives. And that would create a halo of deterrence around U.S. companies and other companies wanting to partner with these organizations, including within China. And that would make it much more difficult for U.S. companies to, to, to make those kinds of decisions, to try to be in the Chinese market despite censorship. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Connor Boyle and edited by Tom Hall. Don't forget, there's more of that discussion in a special extended edit waiting for you to dig into as Intelligence Squared members. Head over to intelligencesquared.com forward slash membership to sign up and get it all in one go. Or just hit subscribe on Apple. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.